Hi there, welcome to Glenlyden Baptist Church's podcast network. We're glad you can join us today. If you'd like more information on the church, please visit us on our website, www.gebc.org.nz. We hope you enjoy the pod. Thank you. Yeah, so good to be here again this morning. See lots of familiar faces and some new faces. Um, yeah, just but honestly such an encouragement to be in a space where we can worship together and and such faith um, and that God speaks to us. Isn't he good? Amen. And many of the themes that came up this morning um, are what I want to talk about today, actually. So I, I was uh, scribbling some notes um, as you guys were talking. Um, isn't God good like that too? So this morning, I want to start by introducing you to two people. The first is my grandma. This is a picture of my grandma about, from about 10 years ago. My grandma was a very special lady. Despite hardship, she loved well. In the 1950s, within the space of a month, her seven-day-old baby died, and then her father passed away. And not long after that, my granddad, her husband, got sick. And for months, Grandma ran their dairy farm, milking cows, moving herds, managing the helpers, as well as tending to and feeding four young children. But she never complained. She just got on with it, what needed to be done, and yet she still made time for people, although maybe people came to her because she was such a good cook. (laughs) I was one of 13 of Grandma's grandchildren, And all of us were so different, and yet she managed to relate to each of us, and we all felt loved and appreciated by her. Sadly, my grandma got bowel cancer and was not fit enough for an operation. But even that fact, she just stoically accepted and made the most of the next 18 months until she suddenly passed away, and that was about three years ago. The second person I want to introduce you to is a lady that I'll call Issa. At the time that I met Issa, she was 35 years old and living in Kathmandu in Nepal. Issa had leprosy and is still living with the lifelong effects of leprosy. And while leprosy is completely eradicated in our Western world, it still carries great stigma through parts of Asia, thought to be a curse from the gods. And treatment is free and easy, but because of this stigma, many people don't go and seek the treatment. And so, because leprosy affects the the peripheral nerves, people have large wounds by the time that they eventually do get seek treatment because they can't feel their hands or their feet. And I first met Issa 15 years after she found out she had leprosy, and she had two large wounds in her feet. She didn't notice them getting cut and infected because she'd lost the feeling, and so she went to Anandaban Hospital, which is run by the Leprosy Mission, based just outside of Kathmandu, and is where I met her 15 years later, where this photo is taken. At the, the first time, she'd stayed about a year in the hospital, and this time she was back again for the treatment of those same wounds and had been there for about two months. Issa had had to relearn how to look after herself and relearn how to cook. She's been ostracized by her family and many friends, and yet her positivity is contagious. The word that comes to mind for me to describe both of these ladies is the word content. The dictionary defines contentment as a state of peaceful happiness or satisfaction, 
You know, we think of contented people as being at ease with their situation, able to appreciate the present and often have a sense of tranquility or serenity about them. And for these two ladies, despite non-optimal circumstances, both of them made the most of what they had, the relationships that they had, and they were content with life. And you probably know people like this too. But what about yourself? Are you content? Would people look at how you navigate your life and describe you as a content person? Contentment is something that I've been thinking a lot about this year. And for me, distraction from content comes in the form of comparison, and particularly comparison with my brothers. I work part-time in research at Kerry Baptist College, and the rest of the time I'm training to be a pastor. And as Gary said, I was here with you guys last year at Glen Eden. Um, and as of March this year, I've been part of Blockhouse Bay Baptist to kind of continue my training, and I'll finish in October next year. But my brothers, um, I've got two, two brothers. They're twins. They're two years younger than me. And they look at my life and think something like, you know, what are you doing, Rebecca? You could be working full-time, earning much more money in your trained field of engineering, and yet you chose to give up advancing that career just to become a pastor. Both my brothers are excelling in their chosen fields, and so are their wives, with household incomes that are more than 2.5 times men Wesley's. Yeah, it's a bit of a, a kick, eh? <laughs> Um, but although I've consciously chosen my direction in life, responding to where I feel like God is calling me, and Wesley and I feel, feel so privileged in many ways, particularly to be able to have a child in January, but the question remains, am I content? I believe God wants us to be content. He offers his followers a life of rest and peace. The joy that Gary and Doreen were talking about this morning, that is what he offers us. He says that, do not be anxious, do not be worried. And when, I'm, when I say that, I'm sure many of God's promises come to mind for you. You know, Jesus invites those who are weary and burdened to come to him and says, I will give you rest. In Psalm 23, the Lord makes us lie down in green pastures and he leads us beside still waters. An image of peace and rest and contentment. And yet we look around us and we see discontentment everywhere. You know, there's too much traffic or the traffic is too slow or the weather is too hot, too rainy, <laughs> too cold. A job doesn't pay enough or doesn't make someone feel valued or co-workers are annoying or our housemates are too messy. You know, our bodies are too fat or not beautiful enough. The government's not making the right decision. Oh, that game last night. Oh, no, wait, we were content with that. <laughs> but, in, you know, in non-ideal circumstances, contentment seems elusive. So how do we become content? And that's what I really want to talk about today. Um, and we're going to do a bit of a whirlwind tour of scripture to find out our answer to that. <laughs> and I want to start by, um, by saying, by pointing out rather, that it's interesting that the word, word translated in our Bibles as content actually only appears in a handful of passages in the New Testament. We see the theme through the entire Bible, but this word content um, is only in these few passages. So I want to 
let's take a look at some of those passages. When John the Baptist was baptizing the crowds of people coming to him, among them were the soldiers, and they asked John the Baptist, what should we do? He replied and said, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. At the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he thanks them for their financial gifts, but takes pains to assure them that he was content. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then again, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he warns him about false teachers who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. He says, but contrary to that, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Because those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you notice a theme in these three passages? They're all about money, and we see that the love of money is in opposition to contentment. The love of money is in opposition to contentment. So we can't be content if we love money, or we go after riches. But why? Why is money so dangerous? Why is it such a temptation and trap? Well, let's notice what the author of Hebrews says about why we should be content. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money, the money theme again, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. The author of Psalm 23 opens with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The psalmist lacks nothing. Why? Because of who God is. Because God is his shepherd and his provider. I think money is so dangerous because money allows us to completely provide for ourselves. And when we provide for ourselves and can control our own environment, we don't rely on God's providence. You know that research shows that people need to believe the world is under control. You know, we, we like that. <laughs> and when our personal control is threatened, such as the loss of a job or loss of a financial investment, then we look to other systems of control outside of ourselves, such as our government. And you know, the better one's government services, the less likely people are to believe in a supernatural power. God is a last resort. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. So we see the secret to being content is to rely on God's providence because it's who God is and his providence in our lives that we can be content with what we have. Contentment is when we tell the shepherd that his provision is enough for all of our physical and material needs. But then how do we go on relying, how do we go about relying on God's providence? 
And now we're going to get practical for a bit. I'm, I'm pleased like that laugh. <laughs> you like practical, good. <laughs> I think, again, looking at the, the whole scope of Scripture, we see a few themes. Firstly, we need to make a habit of asking for God's provision. You know, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, what we now know as the Lord's Prayer, he includes the line, give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. It's as a posture of acknowledging our reliance, each day we are to pray and ask for God's provision. But in order to get in the habit of this, uh, well, in order to ask, we need to make it a habit. That's, <laughs> that's what I meant to say. <laughs> um, my household at the moment has been learning quite a bit about habits, such as to form a habit, we need to have obvious cues around. Like if we want to eat more fruit, we need to leave the fruit on the kitchen counter so that it's just there <laughs> and that the cue is obvious, right? And likewise, you know, if we, we need to remove things that distract us from our habit. So if we want to eat more fruit and less chips, we need to put the chips away in the cupboard so that they're not there just to eat. Um, and one book we've been reading is called The Common Rule, and it gives some examples of helpful habits. For instance, scripture before phone is one of the habits. Um, this habit acknowledges that what we fill our mind with first thing in the morning shapes the lens through which we view ourselves and the world for the rest of the day. You know, if we first pick up our phone and start with work emails, we focus on what we can achieve that day, and that kind of becomes our yardstick for measuring progress. Or if we start our days with social media, we start with comparison and maybe envy and vanity. Whereas if we start our days with scripture, then what God says about us and his provision for us is the lens through which we view the world. So an obvious cue could be leaving your Bible right beside your bed and then reducing the distraction of your phone could be turning your phone off or leaving your phone outside your room or using an app such as Stay Focused, which doesn't allow us to access work emails or social media or whatever else might distract you um, until after a certain time. But another habit might be memorizing relevant Bible verses that remind us of God's provision. So that's what our mind goes to first. Or knowing worship songs. Or maybe we need to kneel when we pray so that it's a purposeful routine or something uncomfortable so that we actually do it. Or maybe having an accountability or a prayer partner would be helpful. Or making prayer walking a regular routine. If we cultivate a habit of asking for God's provision, then when a particularly challenging time comes, like when my brothers get another pay rise, <laughs> um, then I'm ready to replace the voice in my head that is comparing me with that, with one that is God's voice, and I already have this pattern of asking for God's provision. So what distractions might you need to remove to enable you to rely on God? And what habit or spiritual discipline might you need to, to cultivate that? The second way I think we go about relying on God's providence, providence is to believe that God will provide for us. So once we've asked him, we need to believe that he's going to answer us. Paul assures the Philippians that God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Meet all of your needs. And then Jesus himself says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If we seek God, he promises to provide for our needs. Contentment requires believing that he will actually do that. And we see the Bible is full of stories of evidence of God providing for his people. Now, when Jacob goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, God provides a ram instead. When the Israelites left Egypt and were in the wilderness for 40 days, and they're like, well, what are we going to eat? <laughs> God provides manna for them. And this small edible substance which appeared on the ground each morning. We need to believe that God will do the same for us. But note that God provides our needs, not all of our wants. God does not promise we will be rich in this world, but continually urges us to store up our riches in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. Jesus puts our needs in perspective when he asks, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Riches are not what's important here. We can rest in knowing that God provides our needs and actually... We don't need more than that because he's provided for our needs. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Stating the obvious, you know, but it's, it's, it's good. So, a way to cultivate belief in God's provision for the present is to remember what God has done in the past. Now, this was why the Israelites had feasts, so that yearly the nation would remember what God had done for them. Even generations that didn't see it firsthand would hear and be able to tell of what God had done for their nation so that they could trust in God's provision in the present. I have a pattern of journaling every week or two, and then twice a year I set aside time to go back over my journal and remind myself what I prayed and look at how God answered it. And I find that often I can see God's hand in my life more obviously with hindsight than at the time. For instance, um, I, when I moved back to New Zealand from the UK about five years ago, I was looking for a job. I didn't really want to stay in academia. I'd just done my PhD and was like, I have enough of that. <laughs> um, but yet the jobs that I got offered when I was back in New Zealand were seemed to be all in academia. And so I was like, oh, okay, sure, I'll give it one more go. <laughs> so I ended up working in anaesthetic research at Waikato Hospital and actually, looking back, I can see that that was just what I needed. Not necessarily because of the work itself, but because it allowed me to stay in Hamilton, which is where all of my family lived. I joined a great church which treated me like family, and I was able to have a day off a week, which I needed in the end, in order to be able to process and heal for some of the things that I'd been through while away. And I didn't know that I would need that. But praise the Lord that he provided just what I needed. And then when my healing had finished, I left that job and that place. But how will you cultivate belief in God's provision? Lastly, I think we need to take initiative. Now, there's a difference between contentment and complacency. Sometimes it's a fine line, but generally contentment is not sitting back passively and waiting for God to place things on our lap. We are to take initiative to do what we can to improve our current situation while keeping a posture of relying on God's providence and being content in the present. Paul was content, but not complacent. He asked for God's provision and believed that God would provide for him, 
But then as he says in Philippians, I pressed on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When Paul was in prison, he wrote letters to encourage individuals and churches. When he was in need, he asked for people to be sent to him and for financial aid. This is the take ownership theme that also came through this morning in our open space time. We are God's hands and feet in this earth. If we want to be content, we need to take ownership, take initiative, and use the gifts that God, and talents that God has given us to bring about his glory. So what do you need to take initiative in today? A story that stuck with me through my preparation of this sermon is the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. And that's the story I want to leave you with today. Imagine Jesus and his band of dusty disciples <laughs> turning up to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Good friends of Jesus who lived together in the town of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Martha welcomes them in and therefore is probably the head of the household and in line with cultural expectations, gets busy with the needs of her guests. Jesus probably hasn't given her much notice, so there's still a bit to prepare. We could imagine her tidying the house, putting out water for cleansing, setting the table, preparing a meal, preparing sleeping mats, and doing whatever else was necessary to offer her best form of hospitality to Jesus. The text tells us that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she is contrasted with her sister Mary, who was not distracted by the preparations, even though as a woman it would have been expected for her to help Martha. Instead, Mary takes the usual male role and sits at the feet of Jesus, listening to all he said. Perhaps she caught up with Jesus, saying, you know, how's it been going on the road, Jesus? How big a pain have the Pharisees been lately? Uh, whatever the case, the text tells us that Martha was missing out on hearing from Jesus because she was distracted. What are we distracted by? Just as for us, I expect these distractions for Martha were also preventing her from being content because they were taking her away from relying on God. But eventually Martha has had enough of doing all the work herself. Maybe she tried sending Mary some subtle cues to come and help her, and Mary's ignored them. But whatever the case, Martha comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha asked Jesus for help. It would have been easy for Jesus to say, yeah, sure thing, Martha. Let's just pause for a minute here. Mary, you go help your sister, and then we'll pick off where we left off when all the preparations are done. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he responds with grace. Martha, Martha. And he invites Martha to lay down all that is worrying her and distracting her and focus on the one thing that matters, trusting in God. Martha certainly wasn't being complacent, but she also wasn't content. And Jesus knew what Martha needed, so he invited her to sit beside her sister and offered his contentment. The same invitation is available for us this morning. Jesus is reaching out his hand to you. 
God is inviting you, his child, to set aside what is distracting and worrying you, to come out of the shadow, as we heard from Doreen, to ask and believe that God will provide for you, to take initiative where you can and be content. May people look at your life the way I look at my grandma and Issa and say, they were content. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that this is your invitation for us this morning. That you reach out your hand to us and say, come my child, come and sit at my feet. Come and receive my contentment. Lay down your worries and your burdens and your anxieties, anything that distracts you from the one thing that is important. And come my child. Come sit with me. Let me carry you. Let me guide you beside the still waters. For my desire for you is to have contentment. Lord Jesus, we say yes this morning. We say yes to a life of contentment, to a life of choosing to store up our riches in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy because that is what is most important. Our life is much more than the clothes we wear. Lord, because you are here, you are what's most important, Lord. So we say yes to this, Father. Help us to see what we can do this week to cultivate a life of contentment. Let's pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thanks again for joining with us today. If you'd like to know more information on the church or reach out to one of the pastors, please visit our website www.gebc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day. Thank you.